So we are uh, continuing the series, the season in the minors. Again, as you see the graphic, again, if you're a baseball fan, you've probably enjoyed all of the uh, World Series games this last week. Uh, if you are not a baseball fan, then you don't care. And, but if you're not a baseball fan, know that, that this series actually has nothing to do with baseball other than the picture. We're just using that play on the words as we're studying the minor prophets of the Bible. And we started this a few weeks ago as we looked at what is a prophet and why do we have them in our Bible and, and what, how do, what role do they play in God's plan of redeeming his creation. Uh, and, and so we, we learned that. Also, we learned that the last 12 books of the Old Testament are what are known as the minor prophet books. And they're, they're minor prophets, not, not because they're short. They are shorter books, but that's not why they're minor ones, but just because they do uh, address smaller uh, groups of people and smaller spans of time than the major prophets. But again, they had the same role as those major prophets of that they would receive a message from God. And then their role was to then deliver that message to the intended audience. And, and so that God would speak through them to that. And then, uh, and, and then they would hopefully right, respond to that message and move forward closer to God as they uh, continue to follow and walk with God in that time. And, and as we see that, we uh, see, um, again, we're going through these different books, uh, looking at different ones. Last week, we looked at the book of Micah. Uh, and we, we learned, again, um, that most famous verse out of Micah about what God expects of us and, and how he, he calls us to redemption and to just walk, him, walk with him every day. And now today we are moving on to the next book we're going to cover, and that is the book of Obadiah. And so if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to the book of Obadiah. And again, so you can start looking for it because um, it, it's one of those books that's kind of hard to find. Um, and when you see it's again, it's at the end of the Old Testament, but Obadiah is literally the shortest book in the Old Testament. It is one chapter long, it's 21 verses, uh, but it's, it's kind of right there in the middle of the minor prophets. Um, it is a general prophecy, and, and as you see, the main theme of Obadiah, if, if you found open up to it, I just invite you to, to open it up, kind of leave your Bible open. We're going to go back to it a couple different times here this morning. And so, but as we look at Obadiah, uh, we realize that this book is not directed to, uh, specifically to Israel, and that's where most of the Old Testament prophets are. Obadiah is actually directed to a different nation, the nation of Edom. Now, as we establish that, first off, before we can really understand what we are to learn through the book of Obadiah, we have to understand who Edom is and who this nation is. Hey, now, they are closely connected to the, the history of Israel, um, and, and, there are, and so we're going to have to start off with some Old Testament history and go back to some of the, the, the stories, right, and the concepts that are taught in the Old Testament to understand what Obadiah is getting at. So, so we're going to start here with just with the nation of Edom. Now, um, Edom is a nation okay, that is made up of the descendants of Esau. Hey, now, Esau is Jacob's twin brother. Hey, now, if you look, think, again, go back to our Old Testament history and, and kind of the, the, how God you know, raised up certain people to establish his chosen people, and his which eventually was the nation of Israel. Now, if we go back to that, we see this phrase that comes up uh, out of this story, out of this history. Hey, this phrase that we see all throughout Scripture from that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see this phrase, and this phrase is used as a reference back to, again, the God of the Bible, to Yahweh. 
the God of Israel. And again, it's referenced as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the, these three names are the men who's, who God used to start this nation. Okay, we go back to Abraham, and, and, and that's where God again chose him and, and prophesied of him that he would be uh, the father of, of many nations, right? And, and that's where the kind of God's story starts in, as with the nation of Israel, as with Abraham, and then his son Isaac. And again, there's many different stories that, that go along with these guys. And when we can go back and look at it, they're referenced a lot even in the New Testament, right, about their stories and their faith and, and how God worked in them and through them and those lessons we can learn. Okay, but we see, that, so we started with Abraham, then we have his son Isaac, and then Isaac's had, Isaac had two sons, he had twin sons, and they were, those sons were Jacob and Esau. Okay, now these uh, sons are very interesting, okay, because uh, they, their story started out very interesting. As we see, um, because again, they were identical twins, they were born on the same day, obviously, but as we know, even with twins, right, there's an older twin and a younger twin. Right? And, and now the, the firstborn son is very significant in this, their culture and in their history. It was the firstborn son was going to be the one that would carry on the line of the family. And that firstborn son would, would receive what is called the birthright. Now if we go back in Old Testament and even in, in the, the, the Old Testament law and, and the way that God directed Israel is that this this. The, whoever the son was that had the birthright would actually receive double portion than the rest of the family. Okay, now we see that. So this is a very significant thing. And, and yet we see that Esau was actually the older son. In fact, when we see where we're introduced to the story of, of Jacob and Esau, and they are born in, in Genesis 25 is where we first see them. And and this is where they're introduced, and this is where, again, Jacob is having uh, the, all of his, these different kids. And we see, it says in Genesis 25, verse 23, it says, And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Okay, now again, this is very significant because this is, this is different than what their culture said would happen. And even when you read the story of Jacob and Esau, even in the womb, these boys were fighting. Okay, they were even wrestling in the womb. They were going through, if we read their story of even when they were born, like Jacob literally was grabbing the, the heel of Esau as he's born, as they were both fighting to be the firstborn, right? This it started from the very beginning. In fact, if we look at Jacob and Esau, we can look at them, at their relationship with these brothers, and realize that not only does it just this, there's always some sibling rivalry that just naturally happens, but it was way beyond sibling rivalry with Jacob and Esau. It started, like I said, even in the womb. Jacob and Esau were the true definition of frenemies. They were friends and enemies all at the same time. They, and they, they had the struggle all through life. And in fact, if we see their struggles, if we see that from the very beginning, right, that Esau was the firstborn, he rightfully had the birthright, and yet we um, see that Jacob did not accept that as the fact. In fact, Jacob was, was um, he was conniving. He was deceptive. Right? In fact, to say that, really no other way to say it, Jacob was a really good con man. And as we see his story through that, their story actually continues, right, where we see um, where Jacob literally um, sells or buys Esau's birthright from him in that letter part of Genesis 25, 
for a bowl of stew. And, and he, he tricks Esau into this, kind of sets him up. And so, so Jacob ends up with the birthright. And then we see that their story kind of continues through this as, as where he has, he has the birthright. And then, um, then Jacob also steals Esau's blessing. And in this story, it's found in Genesis 27. And this is where Jacob literally deceives his father, Isaac, and tricks um, Esau into receiving his blessing. Now, the blessing's different than the birthright. Okay, the birthright, they kind of go hand in hand. But the blessing of the father was what we is similar to today of like his last will and testament, right? It's where he's formally passing on to his son the leadership of the family. And, and um, again, it was a highly prized thing. And it was a lot of time they saw it as the revealing of God's will for the next generation of the family. And so Jacob literally deceives Esau into getting it from Isaac. And so we see Isaac's blessing on Jacob um, in Genesis 27. And then in the, the latter part of Genesis 27, Isaac gives a second inferior blessing to Esau once they all realize that, that Jacob has deceived them. Okay, so Esau also gets a blessing. Okay, he does pass it on, but yet now the, both of these boys then grow up right, to lead nations and to become nations. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. Okay, and um, Jacob be- becomes the nation of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so this is kind of the foundation. This is the start. And so we see Jacob and Esau here uh, being frenemies. In fact, then a- as they kind of part after this way, and obviously we realize there was some real tension between these brothers after this happened, right? And then we see, though, that they actually reconcile in Genesis 33. Again, we, we know this is somewhat, unfortunately, a very familiar kind of story. I mean, we have so many broken families and siblings that fight and dramas and things, even in our world today. And yet we kind of hope, right, that these families can reconcile. They can find ways to reconcile. And again, as, as Jacob and Esau are both leading their families and these nations, and they do come back together and, and mend fences here in Genesis 33. And then in that, though, we see in Genesis 36 is the story of where Esau and his family then establish the nation of Edom. So they were very close relatives to the nation of Israel. They were literally neighbors, right, in geographic neighbors to Israel. They were still tightly connected, right? And, and even Edom had a connection to Yahweh and the God of the Bible in a different way than the other nations of the world. Obviously, again, Israel was what had this the specific, right, and anointed connection as God's people, but Edom was very close at hand as well. In fact, they were literally a close neighbor, but Edom is mentioned several times in the Old Testament prophetic books, a lot more than just Obadiah. In fact, Edom is referenced in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Malachi, Lamentations, and Joel as well as Obadiah. So we see Edom, again, they had a significant role in the history of God's people. And they were intertwined and and were working with, and yet were enemies. They still lived out this frenemy role, right, with Israel for most of their history. 
And when we see Obadiah, and then they, well, they are calling out Edom now uh, as God judges them in a similar way that he judged Israel. And in fact, that's what most of the Old Testament prophet books are, are about the judgment of Israel. And yet we have a few where Obadiah is completely centered on Edom. In fact, Edom is also referenced in the Psalms a few different times. And so we, we see, again, this, this interwoven history and connection between these two nations. And now we hear, now we are at the book of Obadiah, right? And where uh, this book is about God bringing up the issues that he has with this nation of Edom and kind of where they fell short and where the way that they need to be judged. And they are being judged. I mean, it's, it's the same pattern in Obadiah that we see in many of the other Old Testament prophet books, right? That, that God um, calls them out on their, their sin and their problems and say, this is where we got off. And then God gives them judgment, right, and the consequences of their sin. And then it ends with a, a, a perspective of hope for the future. And this is the same structure we see in Obadiah. Uh, but we end up here starting it off as God presents the problem with Edom and, and why God is upset with them. Um, we start out again with God's sovereignty and his power and authority. And then he calls out Edom on their main issue. Okay? And the main, the main issue that... Is, is present in Edom, is their pride. Okay, in fact, we see this called out um, by God. The very first verses, if the first one is in verse 3. So again, Obadiah chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, but in Obadiah verse 3, um, we, we see where God calls out this very specific heart issue. He says, you have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. You can never reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. Again, we see their, their heart condition, right? Their attitude was one of pride. I mean, that's literally what God says, right? You're pride, and, and your attitude is like, we, we, are, we live in this awesome place, and it was a pretty awesome place, like up in the mountains in these caves, like it was easily defend, defended, and like they could, you know, at an elevated place. I mean, they were at this place. It was a, it was a cool place place where their nation was, and, and yet they, again, had prospered as a nation. They had grown, right, not just population, but, but also just kind of, you know, um, in prominence within the area, and, and so they had a strong military. They had a strong pre economic presence. They were, they were in, like, one of the coolest places for a city, right, as they say, and that's where their pride came from, for all of these things, right, to this attitude that he calls out. It says, of this attitude is of who could ever reach us way up here. Hey, now, with Edom, as he calls them out, as we saw last week, even with Micah, is, and in fact, there's the same concept is through all of Scripture. When God calls us out on our sin, it's not really about our outward actions that God gets really upset about. Hey, what, what God gets really upset about is the condition of our hearts. Right? And, and, and it's the condition of our hearts that then move towards our outward actions, and those actions are, can definitely be sinful, but that's not the real issue that God ever addresses. In fact, even with our salvation, he does not address our outward actions, he addresses our heart first. Right? And that's what happens when we receive Christ as our Savior, is that our heart gets transformed, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then eventually that heart condition makes its way out to our actions, eventually. Right? And that's what our faith journey is all about, right? Is growing and, and changing, being transformed by God's spirit, by the way we think and the way we see the world, where it eventually affects our outward actions and our relationships and every area of our life. But it starts with our heart. 
right? And we saw last week with Micah, again, God first calls out a heart issue, and that's exactly what he does with Edom, right, is he calls out their pride, and he calls out their boastful attitudes, this, this condition of their own heart of being like, God, thank you for all you've done for us. You brought us as far, your many blessings, but we can take it from here. We don't need you. And when you think about that attitude and that perspective, that is still one that we see prevalent in our world today, isn't it? Right? Of Think about most non-believers, right? Or think of life if they're not walking with God at all and they think that's the posture, right? It's like, I don't, I don't have a need for God. I'm fine. Right? And, and, and even if they do recognize that God's there, they still maybe have this, this wrong perspective, right? Of that I can handle it myself. Right, I'll, just earn, I'll just be good, I'll, I'll do good deeds, whatever it is, I'll just earn my own way to heaven. And that's just, again, a lie. It's the same lie that Edom believed. Right, it's why we need a Savior. It's why God sent the Messiah, right, was because we can't do it on our own. Right, that all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. Right, and, and Edom, again, as, as close as they were to Israel, they, they still ended up, they drifted into this place where their pride had taken over. Right, to where they said, thank you, God, for everything you've done, but we're, we're good. We don't need you anymore. We'll take it from here. Right, we are untouchable. And yet, God now calls out through Obadiah and saying, no, you're not, because I'm still God. God is still sovereign, right, meaning that he is the boss. I mean, he makes the rules. Right? And he takes care of those and punishes those that don't follow the rules. Right? And, and God is saying, Edom, you've gone far enough. Right? And now it's going to be judged. And in fact, God calls out Edom on two very specific issues. One's that their pride led them down this road, but then it came out in these, um, these ways right, of their sinful actions. And so Edom, again, is, is specifically called out in verses 10 through 14 for two very specific things. Okay, the, as it starts with their heart condition, now these are the outward actions they're called out for. They, in fact, the, the first thing that they're called out for is being passive during the slaughter of their close relatives. Okay, being passive during the slaughter of their close relatives. Again, Israel is judged. We, we saw that last week in Micah, right? They get judged. They, they go into exile. Judah and Israel both, in the divided kingdom, they both get, get conquered. They get um, you know, uh, exiled, right? Their, their country gets destroyed. And again, this was part of God's judgment on Israel, and yet the, the, the first thing that Edom did wrong was that they stood by and watched it all happen and didn't help. Their close relatives, the ones that they've been intertwined with all the time, again, their, their frenemies, I mean, this was where they, they gave in to the, to the temptation of just standing back and being like, well, guess you're being judged. Shame on you. Right? They did nothing. Like, literally, God calls them out and says, no, you were passive, right? And you just watched your close relatives get destroyed, right? And you did nothing to help them. That we see in, in Obadiah, uh, verse 11, right? it says, when, where God tells him, he says, when they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. And I tell you, there are times when, when God expects us, as followers of him, to stand up and fight for those who can't defend themselves. Yeah, there are times when we have to speak out for those that don't have a voice. There are times when things are happening next to us that we, again, God will call us to step up and speak and to fight for them. 
Again, we know there are those issues. There are those times that are still today, and that is still true today, that God wants us to do that. Now, again, we don't all, I, I also believe, right, that God's not calling every one of us to every fight. And again, that's, uh, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But, but, but yet, this is what Edom is specifically called out for, for not helping Israel in their time of need. Again, not only uh, necessarily fighting up to fight for them or defend them in the time when they got exiled, but also remember, they were walking closer together. They were close relatives, right? This is also the time when, when they should have kind of spoke up in accountability to Israel. And like, hey, Israel, remember, remember God? Remember Yahweh? Remember all he's done for us? Remember all these things? Like, hey, um, you're drifting down the wrong path, right? This is when Edom should have stood up and be like, Israel, you're, like, you're, you're on dangerous ground. Right? And they all, again, they did nothing. They never spoke up. Right? They just stood next to it. Now, I believe one of the reasons that we see through Obadiah, one of the reasons I believe they probably didn't do that was because they were going right along with Israel. Right? They were falling into sin with them. Right? And they were drifting from, from God as well. Right? So again, the same could probably be said of Israel. Right? They also didn't keep Edom on the right path. Right? I mean, I mean they, they were close relatives. They were neighbors. They were supposed to be helping each other. Right? And they didn't. Now, the, the, the second offense is kind of built on top of the first one. Okay, we see, first off, as we said, they stood by, they didn't speak up, they didn't defend or help Israel in any way. But then not only, if that's not bad enough, the second thing that God calls them out on in the later verses here, in verses 12 through 14, is where that they were actually rejoicing at Israel's downfall. Hey, not only did they celebrate when Israel was conquered, but then they also took advantage of their misfortune. Right? And, and, and Edom stood back, not once uh, Israel was invaded and conquered, things were being destroyed, they literally went in with the other enemies and started plundering and taking everything out of Israel for themselves. They, they took advantage of Israel's misfortune. And, and then, if that wasn't even bad enough, that they literally helped those other nations conquer Israel by helping them finish the job. Okay, this is all described in verses 12 through 14. Hey, Obadiah, verse 12, he says, you should, have not, you should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered each misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in a terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should have seized all, uh, should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering. You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. Right? Like Edom was acting as an enemy, not even a frenemy at this point. Right? And, and we see again, as they're called out by God, and he's like, these are all horrible things. Right? You should have been there for your close relatives, and you weren't. And then the entire book culminates into verse 15. Okay? And verse 15 is the center and the summary verse of the entire book. And in verse 15 is when God then hands out his judgment on them. Right? And this is where God tells them that, that, that Edom is going to receive exactly what they gave out. That Edom will receive exactly what they gave. Verse 15, it says, The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. And as you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. 
All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Ouch. Like, this is that moment when you realize, like, man, did not only did I fall short, right, but, but now I'm going to reap what I have sown. Right, what I celebrated on, on my frenemies, right, that was happening to them, is now going to happen to me. Right, this is that moment, right, I mean, all the cliche statements, right, about when it all comes back on you. Right, this is that moment, right, where you kind of realize, like, man, not only how far have I drifted from God or, or how, how bad of choices I've made, but now it's all coming back on me and, it, and it's my own doing. Right, and this, this, this moment, right, this verse is the culmination of, of where God, again, pours out his judgment on Edom. And then we see this, it transitions to this final section of Obadiah, verses 16 through 21. You know, this section is interesting for a few reasons. The first one is that this section is actually not written to Edom. Okay, all Edom gets is their judgment, all right, that culminates in verse 15. This last section is actually directed towards Israel. And if you remember, Israel has already been through judgment and through exile. Okay? And then as we see through the, the prophecies, right, that there would be a holy remnant that God would return and bring back and build back up, right, to reestablish Israel. And, and this, this section is given to them, right, and it is a message of hope. Right, he's, giving, he's telling the remnant, right, to come back and that they will then help judge Edom, and that they will reestablish and reclaim their land and, and start to, to rebuild the nation of Israel. And yet this, all of this message of hope and, and that he gives to Israel then again, ultimately culminates into these final verses in verses 19 through 21, where the fact is reiterated one more time, and it's exactly where we started, right? And that is that God is sovereign no matter what. Okay, God is sovereign no matter what. Now, sovereign is this fancy word, and what sovereign means is that God, God is God, and that we're not. Okay, that God is the one who created, and he, therefore he's the one that has authority. Okay, that God is, he's the one true king. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Everything starts and ends with God. And so he gets to make the rules, and he gets to enforce the rules, right? That God is sovereign no matter what. He is God, we're not. And, and this is actually where the book starts, and it's where the book ends. And literally the entire message of Obadiah is, is, is bookended with this idea that God is sovereign no matter what. Right? Whether you're Israel, or whether you're Edom, or any other nation, it doesn't change the fact that God is God. That's always true. And that is still 100% true today, as it was when this was written thousands of years ago. God is still God. He is still sovereign. And, and as we even look around our world today and, and think and see and, and even um, are torn up about everything that's going on in our world, right, this is still true. And it, it, it all culminates into this, this final sentence of the book in Obadiah 21, it, where it says, Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be 
king. The Lord himself will be king. Right, that was the whole plan, right, from the whole beginning, is that God's supposed to be king. And that's still true today. I mean, that's exactly even the message of Jesus, right? Again, what did he tell Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And again, Pilate got it, right? He says, oh, so you are a king, right? And Jesus didn't deny it because he is. God himself is king. He is sovereign no matter what. And that is still true today, as much as it was then. So what do we learn from Obadiah? Right, what do we learn from Edom and from their demise, from Israel and, and just the, the, the plan that God worked through them and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What do we learn from Obadiah to help us today in our faith in 2021? Well, I have four lessons that I'm going to point out to you today. They're all reiterated in the New Testament, mostly by Jesus. Okay, lessons of Obadiah. First one is that pride will lead us down a very dangerous path. Pride will lead us down a very dangerous path. It led Edom down a very dangerous path, as we see. Uh, it led Israel down a dangerous path. It will lead us down a dangerous path. Just the posture of like, thanks God, but no thanks. I got this on my own. Very dangerous place. Right, and what, what we will do out of our pride will take us down a very wrong road. We see in Romans 12, 3, we see this warning. It says, because the privilege and authority God has given me, I give you, each of you, this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Again, we are compared to God, right? And we will always fall short. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Which is why he provided a way of redemption, right? He sent Jesus to, to, to die in our place and to pay our, our a price for our sin. That's what we celebrated when we took communion today, right? That's why this is so important, right? And so true still today that pride, though, will lead us down to believe the lie that we don't need God, that we're fine on our own. And it's that attitude that will either keep, keep us away from God completely and to never receive Christ as our Savior, to never join the journey of faith and just be like, nope, I, I'm, I'm good. I, 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 don't, I don't need God, right? Oh, but it, it will also hold us back in our faith, even if you are saved and you receive Christ as your Savior, it will still get you to the place where you become stagnant and you camp in your faith instead of moving forward. Thanks, God, I'm saved, but I can take it from here. And that's a very prideful position. And it will take us down a very dangerous path. The next lesson from Obadiah is that we need to care about our neighbors, regardless of our history or relational status. Again, Jacob and Esau, they were frenemies, right? Their nations were frenemies, and yet they're called out for not caring about their neighbors, for not stepping up and saying when they, when they should have spoken out, for not, not stepping up and helping fight Israel in the, the fight that they should have been in, right? And now, again, just as I said earlier, okay, to say that is that we have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to know which fight we're supposed to be in and which ones we're not. Okay, because I'll tell you is every believer is not supposed to be in every fight. Hey, now this is a completely different sermon, I mean a different concept, but that concept is true. There are times when we as followers of Jesus need to step up and speak for those who don't have a voice or fight for those who can't fight for themselves. But, there, but we are not called to every fight. Hey, now if you want to dive deeper into that concept, I just encourage you, we, we talked about it last summer in, in the Sermon on the Mount series, so I go back to that sermon about being peacemakers. Hey, I talked about it in depth in that sermon. 
So again, we go to that. That's, that's, that's for a different time. But, but we need to care about our neighbors, right? Regardless of our history or relational status. Matthew 5, 43, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And the next lesson that we need to learn from Obadiah is that our faith and love for God is manifested in our outward actions and attitudes in our daily life. Is God actually our king? And if God is your king, that you choose that he's your king, and you recommit your allegiance to that king every day as you continue to grow and, and work and live out your faith. And as we do that, again, then, then my faith and my love will become out in my outward actions. And that's how we're going to show the world who Jesus really is. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. Right? In John 13, 34, and 35, he says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment, to love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Because how we treat each other as believers, right, how we interact with the world and the unbelieving world, right, will show them who God really is. We need to represent him well. And, and this, this, this whole concept, right, of the golden rule and about the, the do to others, what you, how you treat others, how you want to be treated, right? I mean, that's, that's what ultimately came down on Edom. I mean, that comes out of that. And again, this is a concept that comes from the Bible. In fact, if you want to write down Matthew 7, 12, that's where that's found, by the way. From the words, from the mouth of Jesus. Whatever you do, uh, or do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. That's exactly what that verse says. And then the last lesson that we learn from Obadiah is that no matter how bad life gets, know that God is king. And no matter how bad life gets, no matter how bad our world gets, right, no matter where, um, where the world goes, and the world is drifting further and further away from God every day. Right, and I'm right there with you. We're sitting there together looking at the world and just thinking, man, this is not good. And it's not good. Right, the world is continuing to go further and further away from God, but yet we, as the people of God, know that he is our king and that he is sovereign no matter what. Right, that our allegiance is to him and only him. He is our king. Right, is he the king of your life? Is he the king of your heart? Again, do you put him on that throne every day that he will not just be your savior but truly be your Lord? that you will submit to his authority, right? That you'll follow through in obedience and the things he, he tells us to do. Again, will I live out and show everybody that, that God is actually my king? Because if I do that, I also know and can find the hope to know that he's with me no matter what I face. Again, we can find, you know, in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of, of all the things in this world that break our heart, we can know, right, that it also breaks the heart of God. But ultimately, he is still king, that he has overcome the world, right, through his death and resurrection. And because I am saved, follower of Jesus, I can find peace in a world that so desperately needs it. It's exactly what Jesus tells us in John 16, 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, 
to take heart because I have overcome the world. And as followers of Jesus, as, as showing our allegiance to our one true king, we know right, that we are with God and that God wins and that God is sovereign. He's God and I'm not. And through that, we can find a peace and a hope and a joy that cannot be found anywhere else. You see, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey today, but I, I don't know, maybe you, you're here or maybe you're watching online and, and you're just checking out this God thing and this church thing and you just, you're not even sure where to start. I'll tell you where you start is just praying and receiving Christ as your Savior. Believing in your heart, asking for forgiveness, inviting him in, and saying, God, I, I want you to be my Savior. I know that you're real. Be my Savior. And come in and, and, and start me on this road to you being the Lord of my life. Right? Just by ask, simply asking and praying that, you can, you can start that journey of faith. And if you've already done that, then the next question is, what, what are you doing to move forward in your faith? Right? What are you doing to take the next step closer to Christ, to be more like him, to be transformed from the inside out, and to live my faith every day, to be obedient in everything that God tells me to do? And, and no matter where you're at, maybe you're already growing in your faith. Maybe it's just continuing to praise God and to, to experience that peace and, 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 and live that out every day. Right? Wherever you're at in your faith, we still can move forward. And we can take these lessons from Obadiah right, and find a peace and a hope that you cannot find anywhere else. And that brings me to my final thought today, and that is this. That no matter what we face in life, we are loved by God and have many chances to contribute to his family and his kingdom. Do you have the hope that comes with knowing God is king? Again, Edom had a chance, right, to, to help God with Israel, and they, they dropped the ball. They were so caught up in their own sin and, and drifting away from God that, that they didn't get the hope, right, that, that God was still king. But we can learn from their mistakes, and wherever your faith journey is today, I hope you'll take a step closer to Christ. Lord God, we are thankful that we can come as we are. God, that we don't have to change to find your love and grace and forgiveness. God, you take us exactly as we are, but Lord, you love us to not leave us there. God, that you will transform our hearts. Lord, to transform us from the inside out so that we truly can live our faith and be more like Christ every day as we choose you as our King. And God, I pray that as we go this week, that we truly live out our faith. God, that we would show this world who you are by the way that we interact with each other, by the way we interact with the unbelieving world. God, by how, how we live out our faith all the time. And from the confidence of knowing that you're with us. God, help us to do life, God, with the hope and the peace that comes from you, not from our own pride. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for transforming us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a role in your plan to save the world. God, as we go this week, help us to not just live our faith every day. God, would help you expand your kingdom as we build your church. Lord, we go this week, we will be your church every day and show allegiance to our one true king. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.